0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I
1: just want to preface this by saying that if you would have told me that I was going to be this 30 something single woman talking to the church about lust, I would have laughed in your faces, wouldn't have taken that seriously. However, that's exactly why I'm up here today. You know, typically when we hear the topic of lust discussed in the church, we're hearing from a married man. And clearly I am not a man and I am not married, so I'm bringing a whole different perspective today. So let's read this portion of the master class from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. So just like we saw last week with anger, Jesus points out that adultery starts in the heart, not just in the action. So how do we deal with lust in the heart? Jesus is making the point that in order to protect our hearts from falling prey to sin, we might need to eliminate certain things in our lives that put us in the occasion of sin. Now, this can be done on a personal level. For example, some may need to avoid movies that portray graphic scenes. What's difficult is that different people react in different ways to temptation. One person's temptation might not be another's. Over the years, as the church has attempted to legislate what needs to be eliminated and what doesn't, the issue becomes more difficult. Now, as I introduce this, I'm going to make a couple of points. And the first point being that fear-based reactionism is not the way of Jesus. Now, to make that point, let's take a brief history lesson. In the 1960s to the 1980s, there was this movement called the Sexual Revolution. And that was a social movement challenging traditional codes of behavior related to sexual and interpersonal relationships throughout the Western world. The central part of this being the growing acceptance of sexual encounters between unmarried adults. So how did the American church respond to this? Well, in the 1980s to the 2000s, evangelical Christians birthed the purity movement. Now, being born in the 80s myself, I totally remember this. I was a part of it. And purity is obviously a good thing. And I do want to preface this by saying that not all of the purity movement was motivated by fear. The problem is that when the church attempts to address broad problems like sexual saturation and lust, easy solutions that seem to apply to everyone can end up being a misstep in protecting the human heart. Now, I remember the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and it left a lot of us confused on how we were supposed to find a spouse or even socialize properly in godly ways with members of the opposite sex. It personally left me with skewed, ways, um, skewed in unhealthy romantic relational perspectives, often wondering if the new guy at church that I hadn't met yet was my future husband, or the one. I remember purity rings that you would wear on the ring finger of your left hand, which meant you had pledged to remain a virgin until you got married. Now, I understand that for some here that rite of passage was important and helpful, but I also learned it was really confusing to guys and led them to believe that you were either taken, engaged, or married, depending on the style of ring that you were wearing. <laughs> then there was the enormous issue that having secured the vow for virginity, if a girl fell into sin, the guilt and shame was crushing. There was this belief that they were now damaged goods. There were terrible metaphors used in various books that we all read that described a girl as damaged beyond repair, like a chewed piece of gum that no one else would want, or a piece of tape that's been used too many times. Now, this kind of language conveyed to girls that while they are valuable and special, their value in God is determined by abstaining from sexual activity rather than instilling in them that the truth is our value to God is intrinsic even when we stumble. The irony is that what protects the heart from sinning is the realization that I am valuable to God and that He loves me. I am ever redeemable in His sight and in His hand. And realizing this protects me from sin so much more than a coerced vow. And this isn't to say that every outcome of the purity movement was bad and damaging. But the point is that movements, in their attempts to eliminate the occasion of sin in a formulaic way, can eventually avoid the importance of individual hearts and different personalities. Now, a lot of people were hurt through this movement, and myself included. And another irony, it resulted in setting up marriage as an idol. It led many to buy into the lie that life in the kingdom of God is not fully satisfied without a sexual relationship in marriage. Now, if you're single for a long period of time in the church, there's this unspoken narrative that gets picked up that there's something wrong with you. The hearts of singles can be tempted to lust as well. This is especially true if they feel that their singleness and sexual abstinence is somehow less of a Christian life. We rarely spend time talking about the importance and the purpose of singleness in the church. So maybe that's a future sermon series that yeah. we do. But it's true and it's so strange to me because we, the fact is that we had a savior that was single and he's our example, right? And Paul, he was the premier apostle. He was a church planner and he wrote 13 books of our Bible and he was also single. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you're not married yet, but you're so great, I wonder why. Are you, are you dating? Are you on dating apps? Because that's how it's getting done these days. <laughs> maybe you're not trying hard enough, or maybe you're being too picky. In fear-based reactions, we've raised up marriage to become an idol that fully satisfies you because we've been subtly discipled by a culture that says sex is what fully satisfies a human being. This is not Jesus' discipleship. To be like Jesus is to be fully satisfied in God, not in a spouse and not in sex. Now, the second point that I would like to share is that lust is not a one-gender issue. So, For as long as I've been in the church, which is my whole life, I've heard that sexual sin is a man's struggle. Even in discussing this topic recently, I've heard things like, if we did an altar call for all those dealing with lust, not a man would be left in their seats. (laughs) Or lust is the thing we talk about at every men's breakfast, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm really glad that this is being discussed amongst men. But the reality is, if we keep talking about lust or sexual sin as a man's only issue, when women go looking for help, no one is there because we rarely acknowledge that women struggle in this area as well. It leads a woman to feel that if it's only a man's issue, then something must be seriously wrong with me. Now, I do have some really surprising statistics regarding Christian women and sexual temptation. However, since this is a Sunday morning service and we have little ears here in campuses and watching at home, I'm going to save that for that Friday night chat that Pastor Grubby was talking about, which is going to be on November 20th. Again, it's going to be a panel of people, NC4 people, including a variety of ages, genders, and relational statuses. So I look forward to unfolding those surprising statistics when, when we get there, so make sure you tune into that. Now, this really shouldn't be surprising. As Paul highlights in Romans 1, the fact that sexual sin is not just a man's issue, God gave both men and women over to their passions. So while less may affect men and women differently, women need to know they are not alone in this battle. None of us are alone. And that is a lie that the enemy uses to keep people in bondage. and I am so over it. <laughs> Family, This is a challenge for all of us, leaders included, to start to continue to create safe spaces and make sure that we are becoming safe people for both men and women to share their struggle with lust and sexual sin so that all of God's children might find love, freedom, and restoration in this area and no longer carry the heavy burden of shame in their sexuality.
0: We've looked at two ways that we can't deal with lust. And the first is that fear-based reactions are not the way of Jesus. And the second was that it's not just a one-gender issue. This is something that actually affects all of humanity. And there's still a couple questions that, that are left for us, which is what exactly is Jesus talking about by lust, and how do we deal with it in the human heart? Those are the big questions. So verse 28 in uh, Matthew 5 there says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. And that, that phrase, lustful intent, is actually, uh, some of you have faces like, why are we talking about this in church? But this is so important. We have to talk about this kind of stuff in church, right? And actually it does massive damage to not talk about it in church. And so this is exactly where we should be talking about it. So. That 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 phrase "lustful intent" in Greek is actually one word, and uh, what's interesting is that in Greek it's actually a neutral word; uh, it doesn't have a, a negative connotation as it does in English. It essentially means the word the word translated there as "lustful intent" it essentially means to have strong desire, strong desire, and what's interesting is. Jesus uses that very word in Matthew 13 when he tells his disciples, Many prophets and righteous men have, desi- have desired to see what you see. Literally, he says, Many prophets and righteous men have lusted to see what you see, <laughs> which was the kingdom of God arriving, not, not anything else. And Jesus uses it in Luke 22 when he says, I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you, the Last Supper. He actually says, I have greatly lusted to eat this meal with you. And so the first point to make here is that there's nothing wrong with desire itself. There's nothing wrong with desire. Desire is God-given, it's good. And so what this is not saying is that if you see someone and find them attractive that you're an adulterer. That's not what it's saying. Because we have to remember This is a really important point. Most of you, I hope, know this already, but some of us uh, need to hear this. Temptation in itself, experiencing temptation, is not a sin. (laughs) Jesus was tempted and yet was without sin. So just because you're struggling through temptation, that's not a reason to beat yourself up. All right? Just experiencing desire is not a reason to beat ourselves up. It doesn't prove that you're an adulterer. It just proves that you're human. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's an that's initial and very important point uh, for someone here to get. But where we start to get to the real relevant meaning for us today on this topic is that that same word for strong desire is the same word that translates covet from the, from the Uh, The Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or uh, donkey or whatever. All the stuff, right? You shall not covet. And so there's an intentionality to this word. There's a seeking it out. There's a giving yourself to it. There's there's a fixation of your strong desire, specifically on something that does not belong to you. That you have no right to to, to fixate that desire on. That, that's the essence of coveting. Something that does not belong to you. And so we can summarize it like this. Here's the, the, the next slide. that According to Jesus, lust is intentionally reducing another person to a mere object of sexual desire. Reducing their humanity to an object that exists for your sexual gratification. That's what he's talking about in terms of uh, looking lustfully. So a couple years ago, I came across an article in, in the, the BBC News, which it was relationship experts giving their advice, several people giving their advice on the rightness or wrongness of fantasizing about other people while you're in a relationship, all right? And basically, the consensus was, well, you definitely shouldn't take the next step and actually, you know, have any kind of contact with that person, but to tell people that they can't fantasize and imagine things, well, that's just, that's just repressive and that's wrong and, and you can never ask anyone to do that. And I, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, that is just about the worst advice I've ever read in my life. <laughs> it's like, where do you think it comes from? You think it just happens? No, it's, it's born in the heart, it's bred in the imagination, and then it gets birth. That's exactly how James talks about it. James, in chapter one fifteen, he says, lust, when it has conceived, when it has given birth, gives birth to sin. So you see there's a, there's a distinction there between the lust itself and then the sin that it leads to when it is fixated on. And it says, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then it says, uh, James adds this warning, he says, make sure you're not deceived. And here's the deception. We think that, well, I don't want to do it. I just want to think about it. I just want to think about how nice it would be. Or, you know, I just want to... What, what's wrong with, with, you know, imagining? That's what he says. That it, when that takes its course, it gives birth to sin and destruction and death. And so, okay. I think what all this highlights is that we've got this completely... Uh, contradictory message that we receive from our culture, okay? Because here's the thing, we're talking about, we're taking the the master class with Jesus, right? But don't think of discipleship as just a Christian thing. In fact, there's nothing essentially Christian about discipleship. Everyone is a disciple. It's, It's just a question of what you're a disciple to. It's just a question of what you're allowing in your life to teach you and shape you and form your worldview. Everyone is a disciple. And so we're all being discipled on an ongoing basis. And there's alternative discipleships to Jesus's. That's what we got to understand. So it's not kind of like if you don't go with Jesus, you're just kind of neutral. You're a free agent just doing whatever you want. No, you're being formed. And the culture, our society, is shaping us. And I think we, we, under that societal uh, discipleship, We've got this massive contradiction. On the one hand, it tells us sex is meaningless. It's just a bodily function, just like any other. It doesn't mean anything. So do whatever you want, right? On the other hand, it tells us sex is the pinnacle of human existence. You can't be a fulfilled human being without being able to express this part of your physicality, right? Don't we receive those two messages? And so there's this contradiction here. So we've got these two messages. Sex is... Meaningless, it's worthless, and at the same time, somehow, it's the pinnacle of your existence, without which you can't be fulfilled, right? How do those things fit together? They don't. What, what does Jesus say to this? Well, in that passage that we read, Jesus says, when it comes to sexuality, if your eye causes you to sin, or your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter heaven as a bloody stump than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And, you know, when we read that, it's like, whoa, Jesus. Hold on a second, you know. How are we supposed to take that? I remember as a kid reading that and being like, what? So, like, do I have to, you know, how are we supposed to take that? Is that literal? Is it metaphorical? And the answer is, yes. <laughs> and I'll go one further in, in a second. But you know what we can take out of what Jesus says here? On the one hand, sex is infinitely more valuable than society teaches us. Infinitely more meaningful. And yet on the other hand, what he's saying is, it is infinitely less valuable than him. It's infinitely less valuable than him. And so there's the next point. Sex is both far more and far less valuable than we tend to think. So, start with the first one. The Bible tells us that sex is more valuable than the world does. Well, how so? It tells us it's not simply a bodily function. It's a holy thing. In fact, so holy that God designed it to be practiced only between a man and a woman who are covenanted together for life. That's the only context that he says that's where it will produce the flourishing that it's intended to produce. Yeah. Outside of that, it leads to disintegration of its purpose and and the the people involved. And so we're told that we're told in Scripture that the sexual bond of marriage, it's actually a picture of the intimacy of the Trinity. It's a picture of the intimacy between God and his church. And so that is is the level of love and commitment and covenant bond that we are to see reflected in it. And so if you think about it in those terms of what, what it is a picture of, well, then it suddenly makes sense why it has such destructive power when it's abused. It's, it's no coincidence that Jesus, when he's, he's, he's applying the principles of kingdom life, he starts with anger and murder, right? The very next thing is the abuse of the gift of sex. Why? Because there's nothing else short of murder that has the same amount of power to dehumanize, to disintegrate human purpose, to, to break people down than the abuse, the misuse of that gift. And so there's a... There's a A tremendous power to it and and Jesus says when it comes to the abuse of that gift he says you should take it so seriously you should take it as seriously as you would amputating a diseased you know portion of your body (laughs) because if not it it, it carries on through the whole rest of the body but here's the thing so I said is it literal or is it metaphorical yes well let me go one further it's literal it's metaphorical and it's hyperbolic What do I mean by that? Because Jesus, what he's doing here is he's taking what the Pharisees taught and he's showing how ridiculous it was, all right? Because basically, according to the Pharisees' idea of what makes you a good person, if you cut off the hand that causes you to sin, well, then you physically can't use that hand to sin. So you're a good person, right? Or if you, you can't look at a woman lustfully if you have no eyes because you literally can't look at her, right? Right? So that makes you a good person. The problem is, if you gouged out your eyes, (laughs) what happens to your imagination? Removing access to the sin doesn't doesn't remove the desire for the sin. And so we still are left with the problem of the human heart. Just cutting off body parts doesn't produce a good heart in a person. So there's your answer to that riddle, okay? <laughs> there's three levels to it at least. But, but here's, here's where I get that from. Jesus says in Mark 7, he says, For from within, out of the heart of a person come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery. It comes out of the heart. And so the question is, how do we cultivate the right heart? That's our next point. That the root of lust is wrong worship. Therefore, the cure for lust is right worship. In Romans 1, Paul describes the downward spiral of sin and its effects on humanity. And here's what he says God gave humanity up in the lusts, there's that word again, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So you see that worship is where it starts. Misplaced worship leads to the mistreatment of God's good creation, which is sin. Wrong worship is what gives birth to sin. Putting created things, Here, here's a way to think about it, sin is putting created things in the place of God. Treating created things, treating creatures, creations, as if they were the creator. In other words, putting those things at the center of your life as if they can offer you ultimate f- fulfillment. As if putting them at the center of your life will, will uh, fulfill that strong desire that you have. The problem is they were never created to be able to do that. I, I always use the, the example of um, you know if you have you've got your car, you've got the engine of the car, and it's designed with a, a certain thirst for fuel, right? It can't function without that fuel. And so if you pour Coca-Cola into the engine and it doesn't work, and then you get angry at Coca-Cola, oh, it's bad, it's evil. No, you're using it wrong. Right? There's nothing wrong with coke, it's just it was not designed as the fuel for that engine. Right? Put gasoline in it, or diesel, or whatever it is, and it works. And it's the same thing when you, when you try and, you know, you put sex into the engine of the human heart, as if it's made to run on that, and it breaks down and then you say, well, sex, sex is really evil. Well, no. It's that you're not designed to run on that. <laughs> you're designed to run on God. So, here we go. The last, the last point here is that to deal with lust requires reorienting worship, desires, and habits. So we don't have time, you know, we could, we could write a book on each of these things, right? But, so I just want to give some big principles here, because then each of us need to take away and, and see this, how this applies to our lives and our families and all that stuff. But to deal with lust requires reorienting worship, desires, and habits, now, as funny as this is going to sound to somebody, probably, one of the biggest breakthroughs in my life personally in this area was, was this realization, and it came, it came uh, I think it came through C.S. C.S. Lewis, um, like a lot of breakthroughs in my life. Uh, <laughs> But this was one of the biggest breakthroughs in my struggle as a man with lust and it was this whenever I'm tempted to lust the thing that I actually desire in that moment can only be found in Jesus whenever I'm tempted and, and actually you can apply that to any area of sin whenever I'm tempted to misuse God's creation sinfully what I'm actually desiring in that moment can only be filled in Jesus. So, Ian, you're telling me when I look at that woman or, or when I look at that man and I desire them, I'm actually desiring Jesus? That's kind of weird. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> because <laughs> if you think about it, when you look when a person looks at another person lustfully, what's happening? You're placing your desire on that person, right? You're placing, and, and, and it's, not, it's not really just a desire for sex. That's how, it, uh, that, that's how it emerges as a symptom. But what's really happening is you're, put, you're putting your desire for joy on that person. You're putting your desire for acceptance, on that person. You're putting your desire for control on that person. You're putting your desire for peace, for well-being, for happiness, for worth on that person. But the thing is, even if you were able to actually have that person in the way that your twisted desire is telling you, they would never be able to fulfill any of those desires. Even your spouse, even in the right context, it's wrong to put it in that place because even your spouse, if you treat them as if they can fulfill all those things in your life, they can. <laughs> only God can fulfill those desires. And so whatever you desire when you enter sin can only actually be fulfilled in Jesus. Sometimes it makes me think of like, sometimes when I think I'm... Um, uh, I'm really hungry, and then I eat something, and I'm like, ah, it's just not hitting the spot. And it's actually because I'm just, I'm totally fatigued and tired, and I just need to sleep. It's a misplaced desire. So even when I get the thing, it doesn't fulfill the desire that I have. Does that make sense? So what happens when you put that true object of worship at the center, you're finally centering on the thing that can actually deliver on those desires. And so the next thing is to train our desires towards that true object. So the next thing is to reorient, that was about reorienting our worship. Now we have to reorient our desires. And it makes me think of uh, the ancient Greeks told uh, the myth, it it was in Homer's Odyssey, they told the myth of the sirens. And the sirens were these beautiful, almost like mermaid-type creatures that would lay on the rocks and when the sailors would go past, they would hear the siren song, and it was so beautiful that they were driven onto the rocks and shipwrecked. So in Homer's Odyssey, the hero is Odysseus, and what he does is that he knows he's going to go through this, and he has his men tie him to the mast of the ship, right? And then he has all the other sailors put wax in their ears, all right? And so... When he hears the song, he starts begging the men, untie me, untie me, and they they don't, they tie it tighter, and tighter, right? And so, the point is, he wants to hear the song, but he doesn't want to suffer the consequences. And I think it's a good picture of how we, a lot of times, try and deal with these issues, is that we want to sail as close to the rocks as we can without shipwrecking, you know? (laughs) That's how I lived as a teenager, especially. It's like, what's the most I can get away with and still be okay, God, you know? Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) even if you do that, what that's a picture of is living life constantly battling this this desire, right? It's this constant struggle, suffering through this, you know, travail of desire. (laughs) But here's what I want to say, that there is a better way. There is a better way. There's another ancient Greek story. This is the story of Orpheus. And Orpheus, on the same journey, he knows that he's got to go past the sirens. But knowing that, what he does is he hires a musician for the the quest. He hires a musician. And when the sirens start to sing their song, the musician plays a better tune. The musician plays a better tune. And the only way to actually have victory over the sirens is to have a sweeter music in your life. To have something that is more desirable in your life. That, that your desires are oriented towards that thing because that's how the power of those things is broken. It's, you know, and, and the thought that comes to me because I, I love food is kind of like, you know, while I'm eating a steak, I'm not craving for a Slim gym right? It doesn't even come into my head. You know, if I'm, if I'm tired, it's two in the morning and I'm driving home and I'm like, you know, trying to stay awake and, you know, maybe I just need a little bit of protein, I'll grab that Slim Jim, right? But while I'm tasting a better flavor, the lesser stuff doesn't even come into my head. Yeah? <laughs> so now you'll remember steak and Slim Jim. Uh, <laughs> But that's, that's, that's where we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives with this. Because <laughs> you can think about it in terms of inviting him continually to break the power of the siren song by a sweeter tune. Holy Spirit, show me just how much more desirable Jesus is than this thing. Show me. Work that into my heart. <laughs> and and, and Part of the thing is, it's not just doing that in the moment of temptation, when you're at your weakest, it's training yourself day in and day out to orient your desires towards that better thing. So I'm going to get to that in just a second, but what, it, what that is touching on is building new habits, all right? So it's reorienting worship, desires, and habits. Now, anyone who's ever tried to break an addiction, whatever it is, you know it's not just as simple as stopping. Well, you just stop, right? It's not that simple because most of what we do, 90%, maybe, I don't know what the exact figure is, but the vast majority of what we do day in and day out, we don't consciously think about. We just do it, we just operate, you know? We're shaped, not just by our conscious thoughts, but by our habits. And our habits actually shape what we desire. So if you're, in, if you're in the habit of eating McDonald's every day, you find yourself desiring McDonald's every day. If you're in the habit of eating kale every day, the thought of McDonald's is kind of like, hmm, hmm, no, right? Um, it's enough about food. I'm not going to go there because I'm just going to make you think about lunch. So if you're struggling with lust, all right, the first half of the question is, how do I stop this habit, right? So you need, you need tactics of how to stop. That's really important. And there's, there's one acronym that is helpful, which is uh, the acronym BAIT, B-A-I-T. And it's, it's, it's helpful to point out that we're most, and I think this goes for lots of other types of sin too, we're most susceptible to fall into temptation when we're bored, when we're angry, and you want control, <laughs> when you're irritated, or when you're tired. And I mean, I can really attest to that. <laughs> so, you know, if you ever argue with your spouse or somebody, isn't it 10 times worse when you're, worse when you're both really tired, right? And so, knowing that, knowing the times when, when you're most likely to be tempted can help you avoid getting into those situations. Avoid letting yourself get to that point, all right? You can avoid the trigger uh, of that habit. So I'm I'm making the last point here, and we're going to head back into worship, that uh, there's a second half to that. So you have to know, how do I stop it? But then the other question is, what are the habits I'm going to start to build into my life that will replace, all right? Because Whenever you repeat behavior, it forms pathways in your brain that make it easier to repeat that behavior. That's how you learn a complex skill, like how to drive, or how to play an instrument. But that's also how we learn addictions. It's a repeated pattern in your brain that it's easier and easier to fall into. And so you can't just break those patterns. You have to learn new ones. You have to learn new ones. And so this is all about worship. And so the way you can ask this question is... What are the practices of worship, the habits that will reshape my desire towards their true objects? There's going to be spiritual things that fall into that. There's going to be, it's all spiritual, but there's going to be practical things. There's going to be relational things. You remember those, those WWJD bracelets? Yeah, that was part of 90s culture too. Um, well, remember, we're all disciples. Uh, the problem with what would Jesus do is that it makes you think that you only respond to that in the moment of being tempted. Yeah, You get into a hard place and you're like, "Well, oh, what would Jesus do? Yeah, Forgetting that what enabled Jesus to do that thing in the moment was not just his effort in the moment, it was his entire life being shaped through habits of worship that gave him the ability to actually do what he wanted in the moment. Kind of like, an, I mean, Paul uses... The, the example of athletes, you know, and I, and I say this all the time, I think, but, you know, when Usain Bolt turns up at the racetrack and he runs in, you know, nine-second, hundred meters, it's not because he just tried really hard at the moment, right? It's because his, his whole life was shaped through what he eats, his, his sleep habits, his exercise, all those things that allow him on race day to run in the way that he, his mind actually wants him to run. And so it's not just what would Jesus do, it's how did Jesus live in the day-to-day that allowed Jesus to do what Jesus did. (laughs) Not not as nice uh, an acronym, you know, but... Maybe for you, it's, it's the habit of rest. The habit of intentionally practicing Sabbath. In a world that's discipling us to be obsessed with productivity, to be obsessed with work. Yeah? Maybe it's the habit of... Eating nutritious meals that will give you more energy so you don't become so tired and irritated. Yeah? In a world that's obsessed with indulgence and quick, you know, everything fast. It might be learning a new way of reading scripture or a a new form of prayer that will breathe new life into it for you. But what happens is as you take on those new habits, you find your desires beginning to be oriented towards their true object. And those things that once held power begin to lose their attractiveness. They begin to lose their power. And so I, I, I can testify to this in this area that it doesn't have to be this eternal struggle every day, tying yourself to the ship's mast and putting, earwax in your, you know, putting wax in your ears. There is a sweeter tune that sets us free to worship and desire what truly satisfies. And his name is Jesus. And to a world around us, that, that sounds corny. That sounds lame. But what that shows me is that you haven't tasted of him. Because when you taste the steak... <laughs> sorry, vegetarians. You know... <laughs> When you taste, when you hear that sweeter music, the lesser sounds don't hold any power anymore. And so if you haven't tasted of him, you haven't experienced what you desired all along. Lord, we know that we live in a society that is dominated by obsession with sex. And there's so many contradictory messages, so many images that are Uh, thrown before us every day. Father, I pray that you would break the power of those uh, lesser and misuses of your gift, that you would set us free to desire you. Lord, that you would show each of us what are the habits that we can begin building into our lives that will break the power, that will shape us towards you. Lord Jesus, because you're the only one that can fulfill us. You're the only one that we're, the engine of our hearts was designed to run on. And Holy Spirit, would you invade this place and let us taste once again and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast.